Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Pentagon moves to secure its supply chain through innovation. The Department of Defense wants to make sure that it's developing and researching these things here at home so that we don't have to be reliant on some people that are our greatest competitors. The most important function in your organization isn't tech, it's leadership. That to me is the difference between success and failure. You can have great programs and great policies and great ideas and great initiatives, but if you can't move the super tanker, none of that's gonna happen. And the days of the password may finally be numbered. We're trying to go to a password-less type of ecosystem as we do our modernization efforts across our core suite of applications and our infrastructure. It's Monday, February 28th, 2022, day one of IT Mod Week. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Zero Trust could become a, quote, incomplete experiment, according to the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee. NSTAC makes nine key recommendations and 15 others to the Office of the President on executing on Zero Trust. Those recommendations include a memo from the Office of Management and Budget to connect the federal Zero Trust strategy to FISMA and establishing a Zero Trust program office at CISA. The Defense Department will create regional innovation hubs for microelectronics. The Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Heidi Hsu, calls them a microelectronics commons. Billy Mitchell's writing about it at fedscoop.com. Billy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. First thing that jumped out at me is the concept of regional innovation hubs for microelectronics. Do we know why regional or where those regions might be? Billy, welcome. Thanks, Francis. Uh, No, we don't. Uh, We're still at the RFI stage, so there's a lot to be determined, but it seems like the process that the Department of Defense wants to take is that uh, there's there's existing infrastructure out there, and while there's probably not the level of microelectronics production that is needed, as we can all probably see in our personal lives, as the the car market and automobile market sort of uh, reaches unparalleled difficulty in, in producing <clears throat> these chips and things that are needed to produce cars, uh, as we've all seen, um, there's existing academic institutions and other small businesses that the Department of Defense wants to partner with. Um, so this is really an effort to create public-private partnerships uh, with the Department of Defense so that, um, you know, it can invest the money and talent into these places that are already in existence in hopes that that will spur the growth in the economic development and and the needed materials to produce these things. And and then the department can therefore put them into the weapon systems and whatnot that it's developing. Here's the money quote, in my view, from your story on fedscoop.com. The DOD envisions the commons to be a quote, public-private partnership consisting of regional innovation hubs distributed across the U.S. to foster a pipeline of innovative ideas and talent residing in university labs and small business R&D teams. This sounds like a similar mechanism to what the department's used before to just focus in a different direction. This is the innovation hub idea kind of replicated, just focused specifically on these hardware startups and, and small innovation labs in universities. Do you think I'm reading that right? Yeah, you're absolutely reading it correctly. And I think there's another um, uh, ripple or layer that that adds into this as well. And it's that uh, a lot of this has been moved offshore into, uh, you know, competitors like China and a, a big part of this. And you'll see that not only in the Department of Defense, but uh, uh 
across the U.S. economy that uh, uh, the Commerce Department and, and Congress especially are moving in this direction as well with new um, efforts, including legislation um, such as the U.S. Uh, Innovation and Com Competition uh, Act. I might have just butchered that, but it the effort is to bring some of this uh, development, talent and whatnot back to America so that it doesn't have to be as reliant on some of our great competitors such as China, especially when uh, the pandemic rolled in and, and really kind of uh, stifled these supply chains. Um, so I, I think uh, while it's the reason why it's targeting small businesses and academic institutions is just that to make sure that this stuff is developed here in uh, the United States rather than uh, in China and elsewhere. So there's the supply chain importance of this then, as you just described. There's also an importance here, I think, based on something that Heidi Hsu wrote a month or so ago now, I guess it was, a list of 14 critical technology areas. Microelectronics is one, and it sounds important to me that this is the first one of these 14 where the department has taken a specific step forward. Exactly, exactly. So this is sort of that, you know, that that foundation to a lot of these other ones. And there's also a security element that plays into it that the Department of Defense wants to make sure that it's developing and researching these things here at home so that we don't have to be reliant on some people that are our greatest competitors. A lot of great stuff in this story, Billy. Appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thank you so much. You can read more on Billy's story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Today is day one of IT Mod Week. Government leaders like Congressman Jerry Connolly, the administrator of GSA, Robin Carnahan, and loads of chief information officers and other tech leaders are talking and participating in events all over town all week long. IT Mod Week runs through Friday. You can find a link to learn more and see the schedule in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal government organizations that career employees lead fare better than organizations that political appointees lead. That's the broad finding from new work by the Partnership for Public Service. Ron Sanders is staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida. He's former chief human capital officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and former chair of the Federal Salary Council. Ron, thanks very much for coming on the program. Full disclosure, my understanding is you're not involved with the development of this work. You're here just to talk about what you've read as you've read it like me. What do you see? It's not a big surprise, probably, that employees are more engaged when an SESer leads them than when a political leads them. Is that a fair uh, read? Uh, Welcome. Uh, uh, thanks for having me, Francis. And, and you're right. There's no surprises here. I will add a truth in lending. In one of my previous lives, uh, a couple of decades ago, I helped write a lot of these partnership reports. And the theme hasn't changed. And, you know, here we are, you know, 20 years later and basically saying the same thing. And, and as, as we said, no surprises here, uh, regardless of your political uh, stripe, uh, you know, the, the stereotype, of course, is that Democrats come from think tanks and universities and Republicans come from, uh, you know, they're all corporate chieftains. Uh, in my humble opinion, as a career SESer of uh, some length, neither one prepares somebody for leading in the federal government. Um, so it's uh, it's no surprise that uh, an experienced, savvy career SESer would know how to do that and perhaps do it subtly, but still better engagement scores uh, don't uh, don't blow me away. That's uh, kind of obvious. What does a successful political appointee learn from a successful SES leader 
to apply during the time that she's in government, Ron? Learn is a great choice of words, Francis. First and foremost, they should learn to trust that career SESer. Uh, what he or she says, speaking truth to power, not just on policy matters, but on leading the organization. And uh, I do think that inevitably the successful political appointees do learn. They may not come to the job with the skills, but they learn very quickly what it takes to juggle testifying before Congress and dealing with the media, you know, life in a fishbowl that, that is inside the, uh, the beltway. And it's those kinds of lessons that most of them aren't prepared for. And uh, again, career SESers tend to grow up with that sort of thickened skin. And I think if I were to give them a single lesson, it would be listen to the SESer. They're going to try to help you succeed. You know, it's funny that you say that because in my conversations with careers all throughout the years, the 15 years, there's been one common theme and it's been that he or she listens to us. They listen to the, the people who've been here for a while. And it's, it's funny because even just as recently as last week, a career was telling me that exact thing and saying that with a level of, of positive, like incredulity, she really listens to us. She, and like, they couldn't believe it. And, and the shame of it is that implies to me that that's not the common experience still. Um, unfortunately, uh, you may be right, and, and let me uh, grossly overgeneralize again. <laughs> uh, but you know, those that don't listen and learn leave, uh, and you know, unfortunately, they all leave after two or two and a half years. That's yeah. what the the numbers say, and and those numbers have stood the test of you know decades and decades. But, you know, if you learn and you'll learn how to lead, you'll be successful. If you don't learn, you'll leave and somebody else will take your place. So, um, uh, again, if there's a lesson to the political appointees, Republican or Democrat, listen to the career yes or Now, that doesn't always mean, Francis, that they should take his or her advice. Yes. Because they are rooted in the status quo. I'll be the first to admit that. And, uh, you know, a political appointee is there for a reason, and that is in part to change things, hopefully for the better. But listening, uh, particularly around how to do something, not whether to do something, but how, that's a very valuable lesson. And unfortunately, it takes a while for most Republican and Democratic political appointees to learn that. You know, that uh, 24-month expiration date that most uh, politicals are stamped with on their foreheads when they walk in the door, that's a challenge for the SES, or isn't it, Ron? It is, because things have to happen very, very quickly. I wish we could figure out a way to extend that. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are a, a couple of ways, uh, a couple of ways to do that. One is, uh, frankly, to increase the pay of senior uh, administration officials. And I don't care whether they're career SESers that have come up through the ranks or political appointees. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the, the top level for, you know, executive level one and two, that hasn't changed for years even while the market has grown significantly more expensive and hyper-competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, increasing the salaries would help. I think giving more career employees an opportunity to move up to the political ranks, to the appointee ranks, uh, through term appointments and things like that. Uh, Francis, we did that when I was at IRS. Uh, Charles Rosati, when he became commissioner, that was coincident with an extension of his, you know, basically a term appointment. So he would transcend administration. Same thing with the FBI director and others. The more of that, the better. 
because there is a learning curve and it, it you know, as steep as it may be for some, it's still a learning curve. And that means that there is always going to be a lag between appointment and effective leadership. This partnership report calls out one of the biggest problems in the political and SES dynamic run. And that is in every administration, it seems like now, it takes longer and longer and longer to get those people in place in the first place. And then the clock ticks on that 24 month thing that we were talking about a moment ago, the partnership writes, the number of Senate confirmed positions grew from 779 to 1237 between 1960 and 2016. And if you just have to get through almost twice as many people, it's going to take a lot longer until you have all those people in place for then the SES people to interact with, help them learn how the process works and all of that. Right. It, and, it, you know, we have become hyper-partisan and that delays confirmation. And when an SESer is acting, they're not going to grab the program by the reins and lead it. They're going to wait. Um, here's one thing that would help. And this is uh, an example from my uh, relative youth, uh, Francis. Uh, when I went to the Internal Revenue Service, we had the authority to bring in uh, 50 critical pay executives, um, a higher salary, not as high as I would have liked, but uh, still a higher salary. Most of them came from the private sector. They were technologists and, and corporate leaders. And after some painful misstarts, uh, missteps, we realized that we needed to provide a, a, what literally became a year's lo year long onboarding program for them with a career SESer attached to their hip. Whether they were the principal or the deputy or, you know, it didn't matter. There was a career SESer attached to their hip uh, experience that would show them the ropes. And, the, and it was accompanied by lots of discussions, therapy, coaching and training on what it takes to lead in government. Now, these were not political appointees. These were just critical pay, but they might as well have been. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so, again, I think there's a convergence here. We, we know how to do this if somebody would just turn us loose to do it. You kind of um, went where I wanted to go, which is what's the process before somebody's even confirmed? What does a political appointee know when she walks in the door the first day or the couple of weeks before that, you know, that there's kind of that prep period? What happens in that time so that when someone is sworn in, she knows what she's got to deal with that day? Well, unfortunately, I think during that uh, short uh, interregnum between nomination and confirmation, may not always be short, uh, most of the time is spent on preparing the nominee to be confirmed. And that means focus on programs mm -hmm. and policies and not so much on leading the organization. And if, if I were king for a day, I would make that third pillar mandatory and I would ask uh, 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 Senate confirmation hearings to address that. How would you lead the organization? Not just what policies you bring into place or what programs you continue or change, but um, what are you going to do to lead? How are you going to engage employees? Um, how are you going to communicate to them? How are you going to uh, uh, act as a change agent, not just with the external world, but your internal staff so that you can be successful? And too, too, too often, Again, uh, appointees of both political stripes are never questioned or queried about that. And they need to be because that, to me, is the difference between success and failure. You can have great programs and great policies and great ideas and great initiatives. 
But if you can't move the super tanker, none of that's going to happen. If you were king for a day, this would be a great show that day. That's all I have to say. Ron Sanders, thanks very much, my friend. Thank you, Francis. Anytime. You can read more about the partnership study in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Tuesday's show, the Technology Edge from the General Services Administration. The Acting Assistant Commissioner of the Technology Transformation Services, GSA, Ashley Mahan, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Zero Trust strategy from the Office of Management and Budget includes specific timelines and deadlines for agencies. Some organizations got a head start, though. Matal Desai is Chief Information Officer at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. He tells my colleague Wyatt Cash, FERC has been on the Zero Trust track for a long time. A lot of the initiatives and operational activities that were going on for us, the executive order really kind of cemented that need. I think for us, is a couple of things. We... We are looking to probably reprioritize some of those projects initiatives to support the requirements of the EO, um, not necessarily just for a compliance requirement, but more importantly, to better protect our systems and the data that supports those systems. I think the other piece of this that's very important for us is that we, we are looking at a modernization effort across our, our core suite of applications and also our infrastructure. So the executive order was very timely for us, right? Weaving in the concepts of zero trust is going to be very important as we modernize over the next few years in respect to better protecting our ecosystem, if you will. And then also we're going to be doing an analysis or kind of an introspection of our environment, of our legacy applications and systems, and where zero trust principles we can effectively implement. And if we can't, what kind of level of compensating controls we'll put in place. Also, like many other agencies, we are a candidate at the Tech Modernization Fund, the TMF. We've applied for that. I jokingly call it either we're going to get a full scholarship or partial scholarship for it. But I think using those resources will help us kind of speed up a lot of our initiatives to support the Zero Trust strategy. Well, here's hoping you get the full scholarship, Ryan. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, next, let me ask, you know, how is the government's willingness to, you know, allow employees to work remotely, uh, you know, from kind of anywhere at any time, if you will, altered your approach to identity and authentic, uh, multi-factor authentication management? Yeah, so I think at the commission, it's really kind of helped enhance, right? And so at the onset of the pandemic, March of 2020, when, you know, when the global pandemic became a, a very, very serious thing for government agencies and how we support that need, our share organization was really spending a lot of time in respect to what we called no more snow days at the commission, right? So implementation of the Administrative Leave Act. So making sure that our employees who are responsible for the uh, regulatory process had access to services from a remote perspective. So we began that journey around multi-factor authentication using PIV authentication. Um, during the onset of the pandemic, I think the biggest thing that kind of came out is that are we ensuring that you know PIV credentialing is still supportable, right? Certificates that are expiring on a, on a prescribed basis, can we have our employees have the option to renew that prior to the onset? And then what do we do during that period of time? I think what it's really made us do is really look at our processes and our governance models and how we better support the use of multi-factor authentication, increase usage through single sign-on, and then monitor who's on the network, when they're on the network, and do they have the right provision level of access to be accessing certain data sets or work sets as well? So 
Well, and then kind of parallel to that, how is your agency moving towards more, as they call it, human-centric cybersecurity? You know, for instance, by helping equip employees to deal with the growing threat of ransomware and phishing attacks. Yeah, so we look at it, you know, in a multitude of things. So we look at a training, awareness, and testing. So from a training aspect, you know, every year we, we, we require our folks to take some level of IT security and privacy awareness training. That training is obviously is updated in respect to the emerging threats, the frequent threats, and the new threats that we see impacting many federal government information systems to better inform our user base or user community to be better IT stewards when they're on the infrastructure. So that's one thing that we do. I think the second piece that we really work on is the awareness function, right? Is that, you know, we, we send out time-to-time security bulletins to our user community about something that's emerging threats. So think of tax seasons coming up right now, right? And so we'll probably be sending out more information on how to better protect and better look at a certain level of emails that they receive that look very, very near, like you're looking at a, a link to a W-2, right? Or a link to tax, tax software and helping them identify what's considered a threat. And then also providing them an avenue to report these things so that our security operations teams more effectively can respond to those incidents I think the last thing that we're looking at is the, the spear phishing exercises, right? That's something that we do on a prescribed basis, and we'll continue to do that. Gleaming those metrics after we do those tests really help us better effectuate how do we do training a certain way, or do we need to train a certain level of folks like our administrators or more of our business users in respect to how they're interpreting the types of attacks that they're seeing. So I think the combination of those three are really kind of helping us in order to support more of that zero trust strategy, that training and awareness as well. Thank you for outlining that. And then lastly, Matal, I'd be curious, what steps are being implemented to also help your organization's employees create and manage their passwords more effectively? Because we know it's going to be a while before we can really retire passwords. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'd argue to say that users that have to remember a large amount of passwords change those passwords on a frequent basis really degrades the security environment because from a human perspective, uh, people tend to write those down. And so what the commission is trying to do, we are a heavy user of multi-factor authentication, right? We we look at phishing resistant type of multi-factor authentication to to protect our assets. And so increasing that use, moving away from password, we're trying to go to a password-less type of ecosystem as we do our modernization efforts across our core suite of applications and our infrastructure. For those services that are legacy that, you know, are going to require specific applications, require use of username and password, we're looking at ways to better put a different level of authentication in there. Some level of multi-factor, but where we can better protect our assets, maybe doing more of single sign-on, if you will. Um, And then I think the last piece, kind of where I touched back earlier, our security operations teams, right? Having better visibility on who's on the network, when they're on the network. And, and are they really having the right level of authority to be able to access those work sets and data sets and services at the end of the day uh, to ensure that we have better protection of our, of our core suite of applications, our systems, and quite frankly, our infrastructure at the end of the day. The CIO at FERC, Matal Desai, you could find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. If you haven't, please go do it today. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, Ashley Mahan of the Technology Transformation Services at GSA. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.